Welcome back to Planning On Call with your on-call financial planner, Tim Hamilton. And I'm very happy to be sitting down today with Eva Minkoff. Uh, Eva is another individual that, uh, actually very similar to our last episode, where her personal life has really now reflected her professional life quite a bit. And so what we are doing today is sitting down to talk about humanizing healthcare and in particular working with individuals with chronic illness. And so where I wanted to start today was diving a little into your personal background, Eva, um, and then we'll learn a little bit more about how that's, that reflects your, your professional life now. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think personal and professional lives are inextricably intertwined, <laughs> whether people like to admit that or not. And it's definitely been the case for me. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm Eva Minkoff. I am uh, a chronic illness warrior. I'll say, uh, I have, uh, a few different conditions. The ones that really stand out are fibromyalgia, woohoo, crapshoot of all conditions, uh, and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. Uh, I have the hypermobile kind, which uh, there, there are a lot of different kinds of EDS, as it's called. Luckily, mine is not so severe, but it is. it still includes me uh, having pain every day and um, struggling here and there. But anyway, uh, I wanted to go back to actually when I was eight, I thought about this earlier this morning when I was mulling over, like, how does one tell their story? When I was eight years old, it was the first time I was feeling pain that didn't make sense to me. And everyone chalked it up to growing pains because legitimately I uh, grew from a size like two to six in shoes in two months. So I grew pretty fast. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I remember feeling abnormal pain then. It was also around the time I started dancing pretty seriously. Uh, I've, I have uh, I was a professionally trained ballet dancer for 15 years, and it started getting like really serious around eight years old, which is sort of a crazy concept to me, but sure. Uh, and at the same time, it was when my entrepreneurial bug started kicking in. I was... Uh, coming up with business plans for coffee shops and ballet studios and I don't know, all these different things that I found interesting in life. And I just took note of that this morning when I was thinking about my past, that my pain, my ballet life and my interest in entrepreneurship all seemed to happen at the same time. Fast forwarding a number of years, uh, I started seeing specialists for really intense shoulder pain when I was 12. Uh, I'm from the New York City area. So I saw, you know, the top docs. I remember going to the pediatric department in uh, New York Presbyterian, uh, orthopedic, yeah, I think orthopedics, probably a number of different departments as well, because I had like this, it felt like my shoulder was being sawed off. That's how I would explain it to doctors. I really didn't know what else to say. I was like, it feels like someone's taking a knife and slowly going back and forth in my shoulder joint. It sounded to them like I had a torn rotator cuff, but had nothing on any scan. And so from the age of 12 to the age of 20, I was, I was tested for literally everything you could be tested for in the realm of chronic pain, uh, RA, MS, lupus, Lyme, all multiple times, uh, and no injuries, but my shoulder pain started moving to different parts of my body. 
my my joints were just they would have sharp and achy pain seemingly from nothing it could be related to me having had a hard day at dance but not necessarily and other kids my age who were dancing weren't having pain like me we were having bloody toenails and some other gruesome things that come from being a ballet dancer but nothing like i was i also had vertigo and just and brain fog and all these weird symptoms that just didn't make any sense to any doctor and again i was in new york city where we have some pretty good freaking doctors right <laughs> so I was a teenager, a teenage girl, a teenage girl dancer. So I'm not surprised, though I'm hurt, uh, that a lot of doctors thought I was making it up. Right? Like, here I am, this privileged white girl who's complaining of pain that nobody can understand, can't see any root cause of it. And I'm, you know, I'm a drama queen. I'm a performer. So I, I got dismissed constantly when, when scans aren't showing anything and you look healthy, blood tests aren't showing. And I understand why doctors would be like, oh, she's just making it up. Cause I, there, I'm sure there are people that do there are, but I was in terrible pain, discomfort and confusion. And not only did doctors not believe me, but my parents didn't believe me. And I have lovely parents just for the record, wonderful parents. So it wasn't until age 20 when I saw a neurologist, I don't know, one day randomly, I was like, I'm going to go see this neurologist who is not necessarily on the top docs list, but he seems to have an interesting background. And he diagnosed me with fibromyalgia. And I think the reason why he was able to diagnose me, and I don't know this doctor anymore. I actually really wish I could go back and talk to him. He decided to ask me about my life outside of my list of symptoms outside of my medical chart. Uh, I did not know what fibromyalgia was at the time, which is ironic because I, uh, I was studying uh, neuropsychology at Sarah Lawrence uh, and my area of specialty was actually like psychoneuroimmunology, which is, I'm sure a lot of people know this, but it's the basically the bridge between the central nervous system and the immune system and a musculoskeletal system. And in short, it's how stress affects the body. That's like kind of what psychoneuroimmunology is. It's like, oh, what does stress do to us physiologically? And that's the basis of fibromyalgia or one of the, one of the contributing factors is that most of us, if not all of us have experienced some sort of quote unquote trauma and that has manifested physically. Now this doctor, he he really, he really shocked me. He's evaluating you, right? Giving me a physical exam, looking at things and then steps back, crosses his arms and says, did you have a traumatic childhood? And I was like, um, I'm, I'm sorry, why are you asking that? That's very random. <laughs> and, and I was honest with him. I said, no, I actually had a fantastic childhood. I was very loved, did not feel neglected. I feel, feel very lucky, but he kept prying and saying, are you sure? There's nothing. It's okay. You can talk to me, whatever. A 20-year-old girl at the time. And then he said, okay, let me rephrase this. Was there anything that was constantly chronically stressful for you growing up physically, mentally, emotionally? And I was like, oh, so maybe 15 years of ballet? Maybe? 
maybe <laughs> where um, I'm not going to bash it too much, but let's just put it this way. They were like Russian style ballet. It was not easy on my brain or my body. And yeah, lo and behold, while there are many ways to diagnose fibromyalgia and we've gotten much better at it, I absolutely fit the bill for it. And again, we don't know the origin of fibro to a T, but it does seem that chronic stress uh, physically and or mentally will lead to the kinds of symptoms that I have. So that was my first experience of understanding firsthand that my world outside of my chart was relevant and that a doctor was actually curious to understand me more as a person and not just my ballet world, but how I reacted to life. I am a relatively emotional being, so that plays a role as well. It's really interesting because, you know, I think back to, yeah, I played a lot of sports growing up um, and when I was a freshman in high school, going into sophomore year, I decided I wanted to play football. And, you know, one thing that my family was, I was really small at the time. Uh, and they're like, you gotta, you gotta get bigger. You gotta start lifting, you gotta do these things. But it was like a big deal. I remember just even talking to coaches and that type of thing about like what you can do to a kid's body, especially in the weight room, that's not gonna mess them up long-term. And I just think it's a little odd, especially, I don't know if it's a gender thing or something like that, but like, I know how intense ballet and, and things like gymnastics too can be on young bodies and young female bodies. And I'm just a little surprised, like, again, thinking back to when I was like, okay, I want to start doing football. And I was also playing hockey at the time. And again, being a, a small guy, just the level of, well, this is, you know, we want to make sure your joints aren't going to be you know, too messed up by doing benching or squatting or something like that early. And I don't know, it's just, I, I think it's, it's a little odd that no doctor was kind of putting it together that you were putting your body under a lot of stress at a really young age. Yeah. Uh, so I will tell you there was what, uh, actually this, I think was the doctor, the rheumatologist at uh, New York Presbyterian at the time, wonderful guy. Uh, but I've been seeing specialists for a few years at this point. And he's like, okay, I don't know what it is. I think it might be some sort of, he said something to do with my spine, except he couldn't see anything wrong with my spine. And, and he said, but it sounds like you're doing ballet a lot. Right. And I said, yeah, I do it like at least two to four hours, six days a week, at least. Uh, and he said, okay, well, why don't you just stop doing ballet? I wanted to punch the guy <laughs> and again, nice guy. But my response was, why don't you stop being a doctor? Yeah. Bell I was a 14, 15 year old girl. Ballet was my life, my life, everything to me. And look, in retrospect, he was probably right. I probably should have stopped ballet. I, un I, I get where he was coming from, but there was no way that was gonna get through to me at that time. And I'll speak more on this later, but it's an example of like, you gotta meet the person where they are. And I don't, I don't, he doesn't need to have been a dancer or to even have known a lot of dancers to get on the same page with me. I made it very clear to him how important ballet was to me. And I don't know for sure if this would have changed anything. I don't. 
But if he had spoken to me differently about that, maybe I would have cut back. Maybe I would have seen it differently. Maybe I wouldn't have pushed to a certain level, but he was just like, oh, you know, just stop doing ballet. And then maybe you'll stop being in pain. It's like, you just don't get me. So I'm going to block you and not listen to anything that you are saying to me. It's that, that's really funny. It makes me think of a story that my, my mom told me or, or conversation I had and my mom's an orthopedic surgeon and, and probably be somebody that would be meeting with you. And, you know, she was going through uh, a process that they were doing in the hospital of really trying to make sure that doctors were humanizing their, their, their patients more. And one thing they told her to say is that when she would say something that was upsetting to someone, <laughs> a patient, and say, what about what I just said is, is upsetting you? And she was telling me a story where she, she, she had a football player that said, am I going to be okay, doc, after he really messed up his knee? And she said, well, you're going to be okay, but you'll probably never play football again. And I guess he started to cry. And my mom was talking to me about it. She's like, yeah. So then I just looked him in the eyes and said, what about what I just said is making you emotional right now? <laughs> <laughs> because that's what she was trained to do in that situation. And I'm like, you know, and I think she's thinking, well, he wasn't going to be professional anyway. Like what, you know, what, what's the big deal? I'm like, mom, this is, this is a young male who probably identifies as a football player. That's who he is. He's probably gonna have to figure out in his twenties <laughs> what he's going to do, but, you know, basically taking away somebody's identity just makes people emotional. But I think doctors are wired a little bit more to just, you know, it's, diagnose the problem, tell them the answer, and then move on. And it's, you know, it, I, I think I sympathize a little bit because I know my mom's a wonderful person and very sympathetic to people. But I think when they're in that setting, it it's difficult. And it's, uh, it, it's just really, really interesting. Yeah. And now years ahead, I have incredible compassion for doctors. And I really, I really want to touch on that. I'm not a one, I'm not going to be the cheerleader for the chronic illness community, at least not alone. I will definitely speak up and say, we need to be looked at as human, just like you are. Uh, we get overlooked. People don't believe us. So actually, something I like to put forward is that both people are experts in this situation. We're an expert in our experience and our, and our bodies, at least our, the experience of our bodies you as doctors are experienced in the science experience, excuse me, experts in the science. And it's together that we're actually going to make something, uh, something happen, uh, find, find answers, uh, not just in terms of diagnostics, but treatment options as well. And, and bringing them to life because you can, as a doctor, give us treatment options, but it might not work for us in our individual lives. So again, I don't know if, if this doctor had spoken to me differently, what would have changed exactly? I don't think I would have just dropped ballet if he spoke to me differently, but it's very possible that the extent to which I danced, maybe I would have moved on from ballet and concentrated more on contemporary and jazz, which I also loved and don't hurt my joints as much, right? Like that, that partnership, that dynamic is so important. And this is just one example I'm talking about that obviously stands out to me, but I got lots, I got lots of stories. <laughs> Um, actually, I'll tell one more story uh, around the time I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. So I, fibro clearly wasn't everything. I had serious joint pain that was unexplained. That was not going to be fibro alone. 
Uh, and so eventually I was diagnosed with uh, just hypermobility syndrome before Ehlers-Danlos. But even before that, I had seen a, again, a top doc orthopedic surgeon on Park Ave, very handsome man. <laughs> I remember he was really handsome. I can't remember his name now, which is good because I won't mention it here, but very handsome man. And I went in with my list of symptoms, you know, it'd been like eight years or something at that point that I'd been seeing specialists and I was ready. You know, I had everything ready, had my story ready, prepared. He came in, barely looked at me. Uh, I spat out my story really fast. And then he told me I had runner's knee. And <laughs> I was like, first of all, I'm not a runner. He's like, no, it, you know, it refers to like kind of wear and tear. You were a dancer, you know? And I was like, but it hurts all over my body, every joint. And like, and I listed, I've got, I don't even know how long my list of symptoms is. I barely touched upon them here. And he just insisted it was runner's knee and gave me a brace for my left knee. Cause my left knee is particularly bad. And I was livid. What made me more livid was the fact that I saw that doctor again, four years later, not realizing I was seeing the same doctor. I like forgot about his name and someone else had referred me to him and the exact same thing happened. It was like deja vu. <laughs> and I, I was just beside myself. And I really tried to keep my cool. I was like, He's a professional. He knows what he's talking about. Everyone seems to think this guy knows what he's talking about. But I felt completely invalidated. Yeah. So, and he was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I mean, what, what, I, I, this is not a discussion that I've had a lot, uh, to be honest. One thing I, I didn't, I didn't understand before this, just how confusing that has to be as a child. What does it feel like? Like what physically does it feel like? Cause that's something that I don't really understand when I hear fibromyalgia. And then also just as a kid that feels like something's happening to their body. But I think as we all know, when you're in middle school and high school, like you don't know what's going on up there anyway, you know, and yeah. just then, and then having doctors telling you that, well, you're, you're you might be making it up. I don't, I don't really know what's wrong with you you know, what, what physically and mentally does that feel like? Well, that is a very good question. Okay. So first of all, to touch on the fact that during your teen years, you don't know what the hell's going on anyway, that, that really doesn't help the situation. Now, retrospectively, I understand it a bit better. Uh, and hormones raging, like your emotions raging are not going to help any chronic condition at like, just that's the truth on that. end anyway, uh, but let's see, let me, let me talk about my symptoms a little bit, because then I think I'll, I can put them in context. So I, I can probably list 10 different types of feelings of pain. Uh, there, I mean, I burning, I literally feel like I'm burning sometimes my arms in particular, it's a, as if I had a sunburn or maybe, maybe a first degree burn you know, something like that. Like if I put my arm under really hot water, not actually boiling, but really hot water and that kind of leftover burnt feeling, uh, there is throbbing, there is sharp pain, there is dull pain, there is ache, uh, there is this weird kind of, I still don't know how to describe it, but it's like this, the numb tingling pain, you know, numbness, it sounds like that doesn't make sense, but it's that pins and needles kind of pain. Uh, and then there is 
there's also different kinds of throbbing pain. There's like throbbing pain that's like a heartbeat kind of um, speed, and then it's then it's a lot faster. I'm not really describing that well, but uh, like intense pulsating. Yeah, I put, you know, I do uh, like I'll play hockey or ski and stuff a lot outside. And what I'm thinking of is like when your when your toes and fingers go numb, and that feeling of when blood starts going back into your limbs that's what it's making me think of which like is the it's like always way more painful than you think yeah oh yeah Yeah. used to happen a metro north for me i would (laughs) if i if i fell asleep on the train and i'd get up it would be agony i would just stand in a very awkward pose while my blood would come back to my the rest of my limb Uh, and so that is something that i still don't really understand very well about my condition and ehlers danlos syndrome and fibro there are definitely overlapping symptoms so i don't i don't know what's what but i uh, i have to move constantly one because i'm uncomfortable i am constantly uncomfortable that is actually one of the worst symptoms for me i'm i feel everything so much more intensely but also my it seems like my circulation gets cut off it's not actually a circulatory issue it's a nervous like a nerve issue. And so if I have any limb bent or there's pressure on it for more than about five minutes, I will get that feeling. Uh, and so if I'm asleep and it's been like that for a long time and I, and I get out of that position, I won't lie. It's a little bit of agony. And I mean, I can't, I'm just thinking of myself on Metro North, like everyone's getting off at Grand Central and I'm standing there in a very awkward upright position because if I breathe too hard it hurts it's really it's really intense and I again I remember my mom as we'd go into the city together she's looking at me and she like believes me but she's also in somewhat disbelief like what is she experiencing right now like be a little tortured by my body (laughs) it doesn't make any sense and up until 20 years of age I didn't know why and honestly I'm now um how old am I? I'm 30. <laughs> and for the past 10 years, even with a diagnosis, it still hasn't made a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, it's so going on to emotional feelings. Well, you kind of feel like you're crazy. It doesn't, I, first of all, everyone else thinks you're crazy. And, and so you start to think, are they, are they right? Am I making this up? Is this real? I still have days where I ask myself that. And then something will happen with my body that's outrageous. And I'm like, nah, I did not make that up. <laughs> that that happened. <laughs> so yeah, there's, um, people may define this differently, but I think everyone with a chronic illness, or at least ones like mine, we have medical trauma. And that can look a lot of different ways, but in essence, it's, we have not been believed. Uh, we're... I keep coming back to the word crazy because when you're making things up, right? Like it's like, you're seeing stuff, you're feeling stuff, you're experiencing things that aren't there, but they are there for you. And there's no way to define it. And then the professionals, the best professionals in the world can't define it for you. Oh God. It's just, it's awful. And I'm saying that as someone who has not had it that bad, I live a relatively normal life. The people that I interview on my podcast, the people that I've had uh, related to the businesses that I've had and worked in, their stories are horrendous, truly horrendous. I mean, maybe they, they took as much time or a little less time to be diagnosed, but they were people that were hospitalized all the time where they could be on death's door and nobody knew why. 
uh, their, their brains like essentially stopped working. They were bedridden. I mean, I've been bedridden with a fibro flare where like my body was just in pain all over and my, I, and my brain couldn't handle it for like 24 hours, maybe once or twice a year. Like that's me really bad. I know people that have spent years like that. So I'm the, I'm the lucky one in this. And I appreciate anyone observing what I'm going through and having empathy for that. But I'm like, guys, this is nothing, nothing. Well, you, you brought up your podcast and I think that's a a great way to transition to talking a little bit about how these experiences have impacted your professional career and how you're trying to help this community through your podcast, which I will bring up, but I'll, I'll let you talk a little bit about your uh, professional career and what you're doing right now uh, to really try to impact this community. So again, I, I think I'm actually going to go back a little bit because I'm starting to tie up loose ends for myself a little bit in my professional slash personal life. When I was in college, around the time I was diagnosed with fibro, I don't remember what happened first, but it was all around the same time that I was studying psychoneuroimmunology. Uh, I had this one class where I went to Sarah Lawrence, which is the coolest school ever academically, by the way, for every class, we had a conference project, which was like an independent study in addition. And so for one of them, I decided to create a, I called it the happiness study, where I wanted to be able to define happiness. Like, <laughs> not, not what would make people happy, but why are people happy? Like what defines their level of happiness? And the long story short is that I came up with this little equation um, to, def- to break it down based on people's expectations. I had a great GP at the time, still love him. And he said, oh, you can perform this study at my office on my patients. Like, I trust you. You're going to interview them. And I know you'll do a good job. And I'll tell them it's all, it's all good. You can go talk to Eva. So I created this study where I'd ask patients about 10 different areas of their life, like really all the main areas, like social life, love life, uh, home life, health, uh, marriage, academics, all, all like the 10 main areas of life. I promise this is relevant. <laughs> Let me just say that. Uh, and I sat down with these people, usually uh, from the age of 40 and above, because he was a GP slash cardiologist, Park Ave, you know, so they were all um, Upper East Side, older people who were not really interested in talking to this 20 year old girl who didn't know anything. Uh, but I'd, I'd asked them about these, their expectations in these areas of their life, I'd ask them to rate them in terms of importance and then share with me any extenuating circumstances. And within five minutes, these people who were strangers five minutes earlier opened up to me about their entire lives and people who were very reluctant to talk to me, might I add. And from that, I think my world changed. I my, my study was successful in that I, I did figure out that expectations and the way that I had aligned them defined one's level of happiness. But what was more remarkable was that I was able to connect with a person so fast and understand so much of their life and have them feel comfortable sharing so much about their life with me in such short time. I'm going to like go into my whole TED talk here because this is actually what I talk about in my TED talk. But uh, I never... I never forgot about that experience because there were at least a few people that seemed 
really happy that had terrible things happen to them, but based on their expectations in life, it, they had very different reactions uh, going forward with their emotional health and their physical health. From that, from that time on, from that study, I realized that a person's experience, their perception of a physical, a mental or emotional experience has everything to do with, well, the rep repercussions going forward. And I know that may seem obvious to some people, I'm not sure, but I was like, okay, there is a lot of work to be done when it comes to relationships between doctors and patients. And I wasn't a doctor in that situation, but I knew even as a young kid that someone who has gone to so many doctors that doctors don't spend enough time with their patients, which I 100%, I'm like making a, a backup movement with my hands right now. I know why. And I also know that even if you had more time, you might not want to, because it's, it's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot to handle someone with a chronic illness or just anyone's life in general. But the time isn't really the problem. It's the ability to connect with a person properly in that time. If anyone knows anything about dating, you can connect with someone really, really fast. It can take like a couple minutes to connect with someone and feel compassion for that person. You don't have to have spent an hour with them. I think I'm going on a weird tangent here, but let's see how I can relate this back. Um, <laughs> Fast forward through school, uh, I decided that I did a lot of different things in school, which just to give a little context, I went into laboratory research, clinical research. I worked in corporate healthcare. I worked in startups. I decided to do a little bit of everything. I even was med school bound and decided not to do that, which I have no qualms about personally, <laughs> not the right thing for me to do. <laughs> I feel like that's like like 70% of people have like a point in college when they're like, maybe I'll be a doctor. And then a majority say, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. But <laughs> yeah, and I did the whole thing. So like I studied neuropsych, right? But I was pre-med the entire time. It was three days after my graduation that I was like, yeah, I want to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> then I got a, a master's in nutrition science because I love that. But I was denying my entrepreneurial bug since, like I said, age eight. I've been writing business plans since I was eight. And so after my nutrition master's, I stopped denying it and was like, you know what? I'm going to create something of my own. And so I did have a business where I actually helped uh, postpartum women, new moms rehabilitate with, uh, in terms of their nutrition, their fitness and their counseling. And again, I ended up loving the counseling part the most. And that was the thing I wasn't licensed to do. I mean, I would tell them I'd like consult unofficially, right? But it was the emotional side that they really needed the most help with. They needed someone to listen to them. These women who had just had babies who hired me to help them essentially get back in shape, right? Like on the surface, that's why they hired me. They really were the equivalent of people with chronic illnesses who felt alone and unheard and lost. It's funny, I actually really never thought about that out loud until just now. Um, this is, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's why I related them so well, despite me not being mom, being a mom. And I just really hung on to that. I loved that experience with my clients, being able to connect with them as women who they knew I wasn't a mom. I was 24 years old when I started that business. I'm sorry, there are lots of moms at 24, but I was not a mom at 24. <laughs> 
And uh, that business didn't end up working out because, I mean, I, I don't think I was ready to have a business. I didn't knew, know what it would entail. But I did end up working for a health tech startup so, shortly after that, which was a uh, patient care. I don't, I don't even remember what it was now about. Anyway, it was something, some technology that helped with monitoring patient care. And the best part about that actually was that it brought me to the HIMSS conference, which I can never remember. I, I looked it up. It's the Healthcare Information and Management Systems Society <laughs> conference. <laughs> it's the biggest health tech conference in the world. So if anyone's in health tech, they know about the HIMSS conference. So I was taken there and I was already thinking about uh, this idea of how to get doctors and patients to match in some way. I come up with this idea of like a dating site equivalent for doctors and patients, because I wish that I had found the right doctors sooner. And when I went to the HIMSS conference, it was three floors of, uh, like in Las Vegas of one of those major centers. So like that many health technology companies that I was doing the rounds of, cause that was my business development role. And I didn't see a single platform or piece of technology that addressed the patient doctor relationship at all. There was like telemedicine was getting started in certain ways, like there were text messaging apps so that you could have an easier time communicating with a doctor you already had. But when it came to finding the right doctor and initiating that relationship, I, there was nothing. I couldn't find anything. And honestly, to this day, I'm still, I still think we're lacking there. And that led me to leave my job and start Wellacopia, which I am sad to say does not exist anymore, but I love to talk about it because I don't care if it's me who creates it or someone else who creates it, it needs to exist. I did create the first matching site for doctors and patients, actually for providers and patients. And what I found really unique about Wellacopia was that it was matching people based on them being people with different expertise based on their expectations. Like who am I as a patient? Like how do I represent myself? And then what are my expectations in my provider? And then the provider does the same. Who am I as a provider? And then what are my expectations in the patient that I'm gonna be treating? A, a doctor-patient relationship is a relationship just like any other relationship, just like people in a couple or friends or colleagues and I wanted that to be represented in this platform for just this particular type of relationship. It was a great product. Uh, it was like very happy with the algorithm we created and people who used it loved it. Again, uh, I don't think I executed it properly. Uh, I did contribute four years of my life to it. It ended at the beginning of the pandemic because it, that was, it was just too much. Ironically, the pandemic was the perfect time for Wellacopia, <laughs> but uh, I have no qualms about shutting it down because it was the right thing to do from a professional standpoint, but I like talking about it because again, whether it be the concept that lives on, the fact that the relationship matters and we should take our time to find the right doctors and our doctors should find, you know, they, can't, they can't really pick the patients a lot of the time, but they can find a way to connect with them and meet expectations. I just think that is so important and I want to put it forward in this world, which brings me to human care, my podcast. And I do, I'm going to jump in and just do a little plug on human care. I've listened to several of these podcasts. Very, very good. I think that anybody that's interested in learning 
more about chronic illness, whether you're a doctor or not, but especially if you're a doctor, I think it's, it's a really, really great podcast. Uh, it's also part of the top rated chronic illness podcast network called Invisible Not Broken, which has many other podcasts that are, are very good as well. So I just wanted to jump in and say, I have listened to this and the whole network is, is great. So I'm excited that you're hitting on that now. Thank you. Yeah, so it's Invisible Not Broken was originally a podcast that I co-hosted with Monica Michelle. Uh, and then we decided to create this chronic illness podcast network. Uh, so, and then that's where I started my individual podcast, Human Care. And Human Care, while I feel it may be morphing in ways, which I'll touch upon, it'll be like a sneak peek because I don't know what's going to be yet. Uh, generally, it's all about relationships within healthcare. And that means relationships between patients and providers, uh, relationships between patients and patients, uh, colleagues, spouses, uh, friends, family members, and the most important relationship, which is ourselves and relating to illness and health. So uh, yeah, on this podcast, I have conversations with health professionals, advocates, people, <laughs> you know, just people who have different perspectives on different relationships related to the healthcare industry and healthcare journeys. And what I'm, this will be the first time I'm talking about it publicly and it's not, it is not finalized yet, but it will be happening. I'm going to be launching a new segment that will be for the purpose of conflict resolution. So it'll look something like this. I'm going to have people submit their stories of um, quote unquote negative interactions. I'm just gonna say negative interactions. So a classic one being, stories that I was talking about earlier. Like I, um, I have a chronic illness. I went to a doctor. I don't feel like they treated me well and I'm upset uh, or someone, someone's going to tell their story. So, and then I will be providing, I, I guess we'll say commentary or coaching based on tools, resources from experts, but it's validating whoever's, whatever that experience was for that person, that anonymous person. And then subsequently touching on what the conflict uh, resolution would be in that scenario. Like, how can you look at you, that patient, as your experience and your actions uh, differently? And then vice versa for whoever you are interacting with, whether it be your doctor, your spouse, your colleague, um, a friend, how can we bring more compassion to ourselves in those conversations and more compassion towards the others? which is incredibly difficult to do, right? Like me having compassion for one of my doc, that doctor that told me I had runner's knee twice, <laughs> but I can, I can. It's, it, it takes work. It's like working any muscle, but you absolutely can get to know yourself better and have more compassion for yourself and therefore get to know other people better and have more compassion for them. And this, I mean, this is important for anyone to work on in any relationship, right? Like I always, I always like to make that clear. Anytime I talked about, talk about healthcare relationships, it should be the same as we would deal with any relationship. They're just different roles. Well, I think you're diving right into speaking a little bit more directly to young physicians. And so I, I want to, I want to move there. So I'd love to hear a little more directly from you about 
what advice do you offer to especially young physicians that may be dealing with individuals with chronic illness coming into into the hospital or into their clinic or something like that um, to understand them a bit, bit better and hopefully diagnose and treat them a bit better? Absolutely. So first I wanna give a little context and understanding of cre credibility in a different way that I don't think everyone knows about me yet. Uh, my husband is a pediatric gastroenterologist. He uh, is finishing up his third year of fellowship and I met him six weeks into residency. So I, I saw it all. <laughs> I didn't see med school. I heard about med school and it seemed like the worst thing ever. <laughs> but I just want to make it known because I didn't go to med school. I'm not a doctor. I just want you all to know, you young doctors, that I've seen what my husband's gone through most emotionally, physically. I mean, this lack of sleep alone is just it's inhumane. I'm not going to go there. It doesn't make sense when my, like Tim, you and Agreed. I talked about this, right? <laughs> <laughs> the 24 hour shifts where my husband, I was like, you know, had a whole day without him. I'd go to bed, I'd wake up and he was still working. I was like, what, what <laughs> it doesn't make any sense anyway. Uh, so not only did I watch him go through so many varying degrees of hardships, but I also watched him grow as a professional and experience people like me. He's a pediatric gastroenterologist. He deals with teenage girls who come in with unexplained GI pain all the time. And, and so it's been really, really eye-opening for me because even though I've had compassion for doctors for years now, uh, it's, I've, I've been in the medical world for a long time now, watching him as a fellow has given me a whole other level of insight because first of all, he's what I call him like the trenches, right. Of medicine. It's like, people are just telling you what to do. You don't want to mess up. <laughs> you, uh, you have so many responsibilities and liabilities, like the time, the financial, the legal, uh, energy, the commitments you guys make and limitations that you have are just insane. So I have the utmost respect for all of you. I just really wanna put that out there. But as stressful as it can get, as tiresome as it can get, as almost impossible as it can seem like it's getting at times, I believe that if you reignite your purpose for becoming a doctor in the first place, which I'm hoping for most of you is to help people. Some people become doctors for various reasons, but I hope that somewhere in there, it's primarily because you want to help people. Patients, people with chronic illnesses are the best time to work that muscle. Remembering, reminding yourself of your purpose. And I know that it may seem contradictory because, and I've spoken to lot, lots of young doctors, not just my husband, I'm friends, a lot of them too, right? And they'll always say to me, oh, Eva, like, God bless you for helping the chronic illness community because they, they're really difficult. And every time I have a chronic patient, my friend said this recently, every time I have a chronic illness patient, I'm disheartened or like he's upset and he's like, oh God, now I have to do this and it's going to be really hard. And I get why he says that because again, I'm thinking on the other side, right? It's uh, there aren't necessarily answers. He, he might not. Have uh, I would just, I just want to say, it's funny. I did a little crowdsourcing before this podcast of just talking to different professionals and that's ex doctors and, um, and surgeons, especially 
not my wife. I'm just putting that out there because I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't put her on the spot this bad. But they said exactly that, that, um, you know, it's, it's nothing against anyone with chronic illness, but it's a little bit of when somebody comes in that needs a surgical procedure that has something like fibromyalgia, it's, it's, uh, it's disheartening, I think is the right word, or, or even, I don't know if I can do the surgery because I don't, it's something I don't understand well enough and I know it's going to make things much more difficult. And that's, that's tough. Yeah. It really is. I, I had, I felt bad for my friend who was saying that, like at the same time, I'm like, Oh, that really sucks to hear, man. That like every doctor that saw me growing up was hating this, <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, I get it. So going back to the purposes you want to, you want to heal people in some capacity, right? If you have a chronic illness, first of all, even if you know what it is, it likely can't be healed. That's why it's a chronic illness. It's something that I'm stuck with for the rest of my life that we're all stuck with for the rest of our lives. And thankfully for many of them, they won't kill us. Like I'm not going to die from fibro Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but I'm going to live with it for the rest of my life. And what I'm trying to say here is that don't be defeated by the fact that maybe you can't even diagnose or you can't cure us because that's whatever, that's the reality of our lives. If you don't know the answer to our diagnosis, please don't give us a false one. <laughs> be, be, and everyone's got different opinions on this, but my personal opinion is be, be vulnerable about the fact that you don't know something, however, at the same time validating that there's something happening. I don't care if a patient is making it, making up their pain even, something's happening, right? So if I, so going back to my husband's 15 year old female patients with unexplained GI pain, they often don't have anything wrong with their gastrointestinal system. Like very often he'll say like, I don't know what to do. I'm at a loss because they don't have anything wrong. Even if I did a scope, there's nothing wrong. And they're telling me I'm wrong. Something's wrong. And then he'll, I don't know exactly what he does. And we've spoken a lot about it, but I assume at least in his mind, he, he wants to get defensive and be like, no, you're wrong. There's nothing wrong with you. Go home. Like I wouldn't blame him if that's, that's his, his dialogue, internal dialogue, but something's going on with that girl. Even, even if it was literally just acting out. And I think a lot of the time it, it might be, um, I'm going to use the term, which People also have different opinions on psychosomatic, which really just means it originated psychologically and manifested physically. People think psychosomatic means that it's made up. No, it's real. It's happening physically. It just came from something that was originally psychological. Psychoneuroimmunology, right? Like I said, is basically the study of how stress affects the body. So these 15-year-old girls, maybe they're experiencing a lot of stress, something to do with things at home or, or, or ballet, but what they're experiencing is real and validating. God, if I'm going to give any advice today, validate everyone's experience. What someone is experiencing is real. Maybe they don't know the etiology. etiology? <laughs> Maybe they don't know where it comes from. Maybe we're all wrong about where it's coming from and what the diagnosis is, but the experience is real. I was a 15-year-old girl feeling like someone was sawing my shoulder off. No, no one was sawing my shoulder off. No, I didn't have a torn rotator cuff. No, I didn't have all, all these different things that I was tested for, but I was in pain and I was confused and lost and unheard. And that was real. 
everyone's experience is real. And that's why I say both people are experts. The doctor's an expert on the science, the patient's an expert in their experience. Please don't forget that. These are people with full lives, just like you. I don't care what age, I don't care if it's a two-year-old or a like 70-year-old, these people have full lives. They are, they experience all the same emotions as you. They experience all the same big life experiences as you, like love and loss and accomplishment and um, intrigue. Like we're all just, I'm getting on like a crazy tired here. We're, <laughs> we're just humans. We're all humans. And if that, if at the end of the day, if we can at least connect on that, then you as doctors are doing your job. In my mind, if you tell a patient, I don't know what's wrong with you, or I think what you think is wrong with you is not the case, but I validate your experience and I will do whatever I can to help you and normalize their situation. Like that, I like if you give, it don't give me any treatment and you don't know what's wrong with me, if you just did that, I would kiss the floor that you walk on. <laughs> it, it's, it's very interesting because it, you're, you're, you're hitting on exactly from, as I said, the kind of crowdsourcing that I did, um, what doctors struggle with, uh, with individuals with chronic illness. And it was funny for the last podcast I did, um, talked a lot about like understanding and diversity in, uh, in medicine. And I was speaking with an individual that did a lot of work in HIV clinics in New York City. She was talking about how hard it is for these people that are coming in that may have HIV, HIV, maybe in the LGBTQ plus community, maybe homeless, and they have so many things going on. And speaking with a doctor, and it was really actually very similar to what you're saying about focusing more on the empathy, more on the humanizing, because probably you're not going to be able to fix everything in this person's life. The difficult part about that is in speaking with doctors, what I've heard is that that's not what they're trained to do, especially somebody like a surgeon. What they're trained to do is find the problem and fix the problem. And when they can't do that, I, I think they, they don't really know where to go. And I don't want to speak for, for anyone, but it, it, it is interesting because I, I don't know how you overcome that that problem because it makes sense your your job especially as a surgeon and somebody like an ortho surgeon you know you're 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 like a you're a welder you're a you're a carpenter you're going in to fix a problem and when that problem isn't fixable i think i think i can understand why people would struggle so much um and so the question for me to you would be how, what would you relay to doctors in, in terms of trying to deal with that feeling of, well, there might not be a super easy answer. What do you do then? Well, one thing I, I'll just reiterate is the first thing you should do is validate their experience. I like, I'm, I'm going to repeat it because it's just that important because that even at the very least allows the patient to feel comfortable with you. It's like, okay, you see, we're seeing eye to eye here. You recognize that what I'm experiencing is real. And I'm talking, even if we have a broken leg and it's obvious what's the case here, 
but validating that a person has a broken leg and that they must be in a lot of pain. I, I really cannot express how far that will take you with a patient. Uh, and words matter. You don't have to say very much, but people, when they are in pain, mentally and physically, words matter. So you don't have to spend a lot of time with this patient. If you just say, even I'm so sorry, you must be in a lot of pain. Like, wow, does that do a lot? That just, if you first connect with someone as a human, there's really quite an enormous ripple effect from that. Some of which could help with diagnostics from a person just opening up and really expressing themselves in the way they need to. That actually is a huge uh, part of the diagnostic process with people with chronic illnesses. Cause you really got to dig into so many aspects of their lives. And if a patient trusts you, they will tell you. And, and they will, and they will trust. They will also not only tell you things, they will trust your treatment recommendations, right? This again, outside of a uh, doctor patient relationship, you are more likely to do something someone else suggests if they trust you. So establishing that initial connection with the person, even if it was just you see them for 10 minutes, I don't know, as a surgeon that you never really have a relationship with, but you meet for, let's say, 10 minutes before the surgery or before scheduling the surgery, that will still have a lot of impact on maybe that person uh, following through with rehab after that surgery, let's say, because they're like, I trust my doctor. My doctor understood what I was going through, and therefore I'm going to take care of myself as best as possible because I knew that they did the best for me. Few words can go a long way with a patient because they're in fight or flight mode a lot of the time when they're seeing a doctor. If something's really wrong and it's not just a checkup, it's like, I'm really scared. I'm going to, I want to fight you or I want to run from this situation. And when you're in fight or flight mode, you're very acutely in tune with what people are saying and what's happening around you. So maybe, maybe that helps a little bit. As for the not having answers and just needing, okay, so I'm thinking from a doctor's perspective, like you said, whether they're a surgeon or really any doctor, their purpose is to find a diagnosis and provide a treatment as fast and as efficiently as possible, right? If we're looking at it from the perspective of other relationships like, like and, and seeing how it carries over, I talked about expectations earlier. If expectations are set in any relationship dynamic, even if they're not ideal, like the other person doesn't like them, but if they're set and there's clear communication there, it will greatly improve, I'll just say, the situation. So if a patient knows, hey, uh, like, sorry, if a surgeon is with a patient and they have 10 minutes with them and they say, hey, you know, this is, this is my role. Um, I see that you're going through this. I understand that you are in a lot of pain. I understand that this has been a long journey for you, let's say. I don't have maybe they could even say, I don't have a lot of time for, uh, with you, but this is what I want to make sure that I understand about you. This is what I'm able to do in my capacity in these 10 minutes or during the surgery or whatever, but being very, very clear about expectations. And then they can ask the patient, let's say, uh, and this is where it's not my expertise at all, but perhaps you could say, is there anything you don't understand? Is there anything I can help you with that we haven't spoken about? Is there something going on with you that is not in your chart that I don't know about that nobody knows about? Is there something significant? And it could be good or bad, by the way, just something significant going on right now that I should know about. Make it clear to the patient that you are listening. You are there. When you are there with them, you are fully there with them. You don't need to spend an hour with this person. You just need to be there with them. 
And uh, I actually want to take a side note and mention uh, the disconnect that often happens when providers are taking notes, which I respect. I'm a huge note taker myself. Uh, when I asked my husband a couple of years ago, like randomly one day, Hey, when you think when your patients are unhappy with you, I guess the older ones, like they, they feel like you're not listening. What, what is it that they usually point out? And he says, Oh, it's when I'm writing notes, when I'm typing on the computer, what they're saying to me, they think I'm not listening, right? You're not looking in their eye. Uh, and you guys got to do that. And there, there are scribes and there are other ways to do it these days. But regardless, I understand that you have to do what you have to do. Setting the expectations for what you're doing is helpful. Like saying like, I'm taking notes, but I'm listening to you. Or when you're done taking notes, let's say, and you are looking at them face to face that you are again, fully present with them. And uh, maybe you're doing a lot of the talking because they just did the talking. You, you took the notes and now you're going to talk. But when you talk, uh, reiterate what they said. Use some of the actual language that that patient used. You're like, did I, got, did I, get, this, did I get this right? You said you've been um, feeling like your shoulder is being sawn off <laughs> for the past 10 years. You know, it's like it's that kind of language. That language is important be on the same level with them. Don't use your doctor language with them. If they, they probably don't understand what it means. And again, I'm married to a fellow. I get that you guys are in the zone. You, you're in school for this. That's all you know. But remember that the person that you're talking to is not in the zone with you. They're in their own zone. So try and get in their zone. It will make a world of a difference. That's great. Thank you. And I, I think you did a, a really great, great job of answering the question. Um, and so actually what I want to do is move out of one thing I reference a lot on this show is what I view as the three stages of a doctor's career, especially how it affects them financially. The grind phase, which is the training period, the growth phase, which is starting their practice and growing their practice. And then the giving stage and the giving stage is when you're focused mostly on giving back to your profession, giving back to the people that have helped you get to where you are. And so I think we really have spoken a lot to the doctors that are in either that grind or growth phase. I want to talk a little bit to the doctors that may be in the giving phase. Um, and they do have a large impact on, let's say, their residency program or from a financial perspective, have the ability to give funds to organizations that can really make a difference and help. So as it relates to chronic illness, from a systematic point of view, or more like a macro point of view, is there anything that you can think of speaking to the people that are maybe at the, the high decision-making level about things that can change, whether it is residency programs or it's organizations to uh, contribute to, or at least look into? Oh, there's so many, there's so many ways this could be done, but I think the best way to have an influence on a system is to go to the source. And that is where, where patients are patients, excuse me, doctors are learning in med school and in residency. Uh, I think that while to my knowledge, uh, doctors learn about quote unquote bedside manner. And uh, I'm gonna even actually include nutrition here, like things around uh, healthy, healthy living. Uh, 
it's, it's minimal. It's really minimal. I think some people spend a week on nutrition or like a couple of weeks on bedside manner. And then it's this very vague term that's thrown around, like be compassionate towards your patients and like speak to them nicely or what. I don't know. I didn't go to med school, but from what I've, I, I need to interview more doctors on this specifically, but when I speak casually about it with doctors, they tell me that, yeah, they're not really taught about any of that stuff, not extensively. And I understand why there's, you can never learn as much as you need to in med school. I'm aware. I'm very, very aware. But as you can also hear throughout this conversation that I keep harping on the fact that connecting with your patient is of utmost importance. And it should not just be this uh, equivalent of an extracurricular in med school. I know it's not what it is, but yet I'm saying like it's pushed to the side. It's way too important. So I would say that in some capacity, having not just a longer course on what, if you want to call it bedside manner or patient provider connection, but making sure that it is essential throughout the training of a physician and going forward that, that there are, I don't know. I I don't, I, I mean, I have ideas about this, but there are just measures in place so that it is always regarded as significant, like highly significant in medical care, not just taking care of a patient, but taking care of the relationship. If that makes sense. Uh, I have, I do have ideas of how that could look, but let's just say on a grand scale that that is made a priority in healthcare uh, from an education and also a practice standpoint. Like maybe that's even how doctors are. Uh, I actually don't know anything about grading or evaluations during residency or fellowship. I assume there must be, but I don't remember my husband talking about them. I don't know. Maybe not with yours either. No, I don't have any, any yeah. idea on that one. Um, but yeah. it is, I think I really, I really loved what you said there that, you know, you have to, I believe it was you, you have to focus on not just the patient, but the relationship, was it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think that that's, that is great. And it, it's interesting because I, I think we know that in other professions, you know, I mean, I think about myself as a financial planner and I mean, I know that the relationship is the, the core of, of what I'm doing with someone. Cause a lot of times it's, it's not about, um, you know, I mean, you want to invest them in the right things and you want to make sure that they're making the right financial decisions. But a lot of times it's about managing their emotions, managing their uh, tendencies to sometimes maybe do the wrong things when it comes to money. And you realize that's more about the relationship than it's about, okay, invest in this or uh, choose this vehicle or something like that. And I think it is interesting because we know that as financial planners. And I just think maybe it, it is that grind phase of becoming a physician, a physician that's so difficult and so focused on testing and, you know, working a hundred hours a week and things like that, that maybe that relationship piece gets pushed to the, to the, the back, which is, which is probably not the best, but it, it's great. It's, it's a great point. And I, I love, I love that saying that that's really, it's really great. Yeah. Relationships are everything, right? They run this world and it's not any different in medicine. It's just not. In fact, it should be more so than others areas of I don't know, industry. We're talking about people's lives at stake here, whether it be actual being alive or 
how the, they live the rest of their lives, which actually I want, I do actually have one additional tip, let's say I'd like mm-hmm. to give that I thought of recently. So healthy, healthy living, you know, quote unquote, healthy living or, uh, as a way to treat an illness, especially a chronic illness. Yeah. I think this is actually maybe really relevant for anyone who's stuck with treating people like me. So for fibromyalgia, uh, we'll use fibro as an example, but this is true for a plethora of chronic illnesses. The only thing you can do really is live a healthy lifestyle, (laughs) Uh, right? Which means like eating well, sleeping well, de-stressing, exercising, meditating, all that stuff. This is very discouraging for both sides because doctors are like, I don't have a prescription for you. Like literally, I don't, can't even tell you what to do in exercise. I just know that these things are shown to help. And then the patient might be like, maybe a few different things. One, like, oh, I'm already doing everything I can to be healthy and it's not working. Or two, like, I don't know what healthy means. This vague term that's thrown around drives me crazy. And there isn't a, an easy solution, but this is what I do advise on both ends. Empower the patient to, to do the work, to find out what a healthy lifestyle means for them. There is no prescription for the right kind of exercise or diet or sleep regimen or whatever for every single person, even for the same illness of the same age and the same gender, there's not because every body is different. Everyone's experience is different, but a healthier lifestyle for any, for any human, but definitely for any chronic illness can make a massive impact, but that patient needs to do it themselves. And the only way they are even remotely likely to do it themselves is if the pet, if the provider empowers them to do so. And what that can look like is first of all, making it clear just how much of an impact it can have, and then giving them ideas as to how to try like different things, and then maybe hold them accountable to it if they are someone they see long-term. So I'll use myself as an example here. I don't take any medications directly for fibromyalgia or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Uh, And I have been able to manage everything because I took my lifestyle seriously, again, very vaguely, but it took a long time. Now I have a history or not a history. Like I have a background in nutrition and psychology where I knew what this stuff could do, but it's still hard to do myself. It was because it was that in combination with my doctors who are like, these things really will make a difference. So keep going that, that led to me being able to manage my life. So for instance, people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, uh, physical therapy is important but everyone's body is a little different and therefore the physical therapy that they do is a little different uh, or yeah, it's whatever. It's <laughs> the what's right is different for everyone. I did PT in the past and it did nothing. And, and so I was discouraged. I was like, I work out a lot and I'll just figure out how to make that work for me. And it wasn't until actually I was officially diagnosed with EDS and things started getting a lot worse this year that I was like, okay, no, I need to take this more seriously. I need to find physical therapy that works for me. And And I was able to, I found the right person. I found the right kind of regimens. I found the right kind of build into the type of physical therapy that was making me feel stronger or at the very least not getting worse. I did the same with nutrition. 
and finding what was the right food for me, what, what I reacted to and didn't react to when it changed and, and like, and things would change that worked for me at one point and then didn't later. Same with my sleep, same with, uh, finding, you know, I'm going to say meditation, which for me isn't really meditating as much as it is like breathing silently for 10, 20 minutes. I had to find what worked for me and I'm still finding what works for me. And I will until the day I die. It is a process. What I'm encouraging you guys as doctors to do is make it clear that that journey is important, not just send them on their way and be like, yeah, try doing these things to eat better, sleep better, de-stress, and you'll feel better. No one is going to do that. (laughs) No one's going to take it seriously. Be very real with them and say, look, you have X illness. You'll probably have it your whole life. And there, there isn't, maybe there is no drug for you and maybe it will get worse, but there is something you can do to take control of your health. You can work on these aspects of your health and don't stop until you find out what's right and keep iterating. So it makes me think, and honestly, we can, we can cut this if, 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 if it's something that we can't really find an answer to, but uh, it's an area that I didn't think we'd really go into, but it, so in this podcast, I've spoken with doctors, but also a lot of people that are in hospital administration too, and looking more at the healthcare system in general and bring it back to my own career a little bit. I think of myself as a financial planner, a lot like a primary care doctor. And I know that there's some things that I'm going to need to refer clients out for some very specific financial needs. A great example is a lawyer to write trusts or things like that. So I'm wondering why is it that you're so, so to take one step back, a lot of times I think of a surgeon not as that primary care doc, not as that financial planner, that relationship oriented person there, they are coming in to fix a problem and then maybe kind of send people on their way after that, or at the very least, they are the specialist that's coming in and somebody else is really kind of that day-to-day manager of their health. And I'm just wondering, why is it that you were going directly to those ortho? Why, Why wasn't there that person that's more specializing on your uh, day-to-day health that maybe would have a better insight into what you're dealing with than that ortho specialist. You're saying like, why before, why didn't I see someone before the orthopedic specialist? Like, Why was there, I'm just, I'm just surprised that, you know, to me, it seems like everything you're saying is that a chronic illness is something that is um, chronic illness is something that has more to do with diet or not diet, but you know, the, the ways that you overcome it are nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. And furthermore, it is, it has to do with so many different things. Um, And I just feel like we keep talking about the times you've gone to meet with specialists that are like neurospecialists or ortho specialists or things like that why aren't we talking as much about the primary care docs? Like, isn't this something that you, your primary care doctor should, should be focused on? Or there, maybe there is a chronic illness specialist. I don't know if those exist or maybe need to exist more, but I am wondering a little bit, like, you know, why are you in those specialists rooms? Why isn't there somebody that 
was able to pick this up when they are looking at the relationship in the holistic view a, a little bit more just kind of playing devil's advocate again because i think yeah. they're you know it, it is like if i refer somebody out to get a trust i don't expect that lawyer to take up time to learn about their entire life that that's kind of more my job as the planner so there's a number of different ways we could look at this first of all people don't see their gps anymore i don't know why it drives me crazy uh that's why urgent cares have become so popular it's like they just don't see anybody until something's wrong and they need a, essentially a first opinion, which would be usually should be a GP when it ends up being the urgent care doctor. Uh, fun fact is that I think in from 2000 to 2010, the most successful like healthcare technology wasn't even a technology. It was urgent care centers. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. Um, uh, or maybe that was the last decade, whatever. It was like a de decade long study. Anyway, uh, so yeah, GPs should be that person. They absolutely should be. And if we're going to talk about relationships again, finding the right GP is so important. So important. I thought about making Wellacopia just for patients and GPs be, uh, for a long time, because if you don't have the right ringleader or core of your care team, that, that could I mean, mess up who you go to see for your care team. They're not going to relay this, the right information. They're not going to be your cheerleader and eh, maybe cheerleader is not the right word, but uh, <laughs> it, your specialists usually come out of whoever your GP is, or that's at least the standard model. And so having that person to build that relationship with, explore your health relationship with, and then take that knowledge and bring it to your specialist, maybe it could save a lot of time, that's for sure. Uh, and also just knowing that you have someone there. It's like you're a doctor parent, right? <laughs> someone who's there for you. They can see you over long-term. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that that's great because I think it does get back to that initial question that started kind of this, this side piece, which is systematically, what are some things that we should be thinking about as well? And um, it's it is really interesting. And I know a lot of a lot of problems right now come back to the fact that there's not enough GPs and that we're there's not paid not well. They're not paid well. They're not treated well. I am, I will say I'm not an expert or not. I don't, I will not speak professionally about the healthcare system from a financial and legal standpoint, even though I know a lot, I feel like there's just so much to know that I won't be able to speak about anything comprehensively, but clearly there are disconnects and that is a whole mess of the system. <laughs> <laughs> We could start speaking for another hour and a half. So I, I, yeah, I will. Uh, exactly. But that's, that's really messed up too, for sure. And then pedi pediatricians of any sort get paid less than non-pediatricians, uh, which it's like, oh, if you're willing to work for kids, you're going to work for like a third of the amount, <laughs> which is just very sad <laughs> is what it is though. Uh, but systematically, I would say anything we can do to educate physicians long-term on patient provider relationships, and then also empowering uh, our, the doctors and therefore the patients to take control of their lifestyles in a, and when I say empower, I mean like proactively, not just like, Hey, you can do these things, go on your merry way. But even if you can't give specific recommendations, just make it so clear how much it will impact their lives if they go on that journey. Then to essentially never stop and empower them to do so. Like 
I spend, whew, I don't know, um, could be anywhere from two to three hours a day on self-care, let's just say. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. And sometimes I'm really discouraged and thinking like, oh, I can't believe I'd spend this much time <laughs> myself in order to stay normal and like have a pretty normal life. But the other way I can look at it and what I encourage doctors to do for their patients and be like, you get to do this for yourself. You get to take care of yourself and look at what it can do for you. You get to spend like me, myself and I time and indulge in that, like see it as a positive that you, you get to do these things for yourself and try these things out. And uh, it's like, Know, making it inviting and make them feel that that's the control that they can have. And even the doctor can have, I know you guys, when you're treating people with chronic illnesses, you feel a lack of control and very frustrated and annoyed. But if you empower the patients to do the work, you know, everybody wins. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do want to leave you with one question though. I, I always ask this as my last question. Um, and of everything we talked about, what if you have one succinct piece of advice for young doctors as it relates to chronic illness, what would that be? Your, your parting words? You're talking to another human. Just anytime you feel frustrated, anytime you feel lost, anytime you feel anything negative about that person or that experience in front of you, just remember that they are human just like you. Treat them the way you would want to be treated treat them the way they would want to be treated. Oh, that is great. Thank you so much again, Eva. Oh, you're very welcome. So that's it for this episode of Planning on Call. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll check back for more episodes in the future as I continue to speak with industry experts and thought leaders to help you plan your financial future. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Atlas Private Wealth Management, LLC, further known as Atlas. The information contained in this podcast was prepared for general information purposes only and is not a substitute for personalized financial advice. Although participants may discuss data and content relating to financial planning, tax planning, estate planning, and other wealth management topics, any such information shared should not be construed as tax, accounting, legal, or investment advice. Topics discussed are based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Atlas does not assume any duty to update information, including forward-looking statements. Likewise, nothing discussed in these recordings should be construed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities or to adopt an investment strategy. As to the accuracy, completeness, and fairness of the information contained in this recording, the information shared has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Atlas. You are responsible for evaluating the information provided to you and any risk associated with the material before making any decision based on content shared. You acknowledge and agree that Atlas is not acting in any fiduciary capacity, nor is any client or fiduciary relationship created as a result of your use of or access to this recording. Investing carries the risk of loss, including the loss of principal. 
past performance is not indicative of future results. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Please visit our website, www.atlaspwm.com, for other important disclosures. This recording should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part without Atlas's express written consent. Copyright 2020, Atlas Private Wealth Management, LLC. All rights reserved.